0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm talking with Steve Williams. He is a corrections officer and a firefighter uh, out west in uh, Northern California, right Steve?
1: Yep, about as far north as you can go in California.
0: So I'll be talking with Steve today uh, about his career in corrections and in fire. He he started working in EMS and fire back in April of 1996. Um, started off working for an ambulance company and as a volunteer firefighter. He then went into you know the ground ambulance, the air ambulance flight crew. Um, He was drawn to wildland firefighting, uh, even though he has uh, extensive training and certifications and the structure fire and rescue arena um, on several technical rescue teams. And uh, it was in mid 2000 that Steve went to the Academy for the California Department of Corrections. It was after he graduated from there that he was assigned to the High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California. Um, it's a high security mission prison uh, uh, and about took, took you, what, about five years to get promoted to sergeant?
1: Yeah, almost exactly five years to the day. It was kind of kind of weird, you know, how and we'll kind of go into that a little bit later. But five years has kind of been my number throughout my career to hit promotions
0: did you get transferred to pelican bay like right after making sergeant or um did you hang out at high uh, high desert for a little while after that
1: no i was at high desert for um for about three years as a a sergeant before i decided to transfer back and you know come back to pelican bay it it was home this is where you know the, the community i was raised in so uh, you know, my parents were here and my kids were getting a little bit older. So, figured, you know, it's time to go home.
0: So Pelican Bay is in Northern California?
1: Yes, we're 30 miles from the Oregon border and we're two miles from the ocean. So can't really go much more Northwest in California.
0: The high desert and Susan, like I have no idea where Susanville is, so.
1: Susanville is an hour west of Reno, Nevada. Um, So you're out in the desert. I mean, it's the high desert. Yeah, it's just dry and hot, or it's dry and cold. There's no, I think fall and uh, spring last like a week each, and then it's either just snow everywhere or it's excruciatingly hot. There's no in between.
0: One one thing that I mean, I, I just kind of want to educate myself today, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions about corrections, because yeah, I, I really don't know anything about it, and, you know, I've heard of Pelican Bay State Prison. I actually think that it's been, uh, like, referenced in movies and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, so Pelican Bay kind of became the uh, the notorious prison, you know. I think it's in Pulp Fiction and, you know, a couple other real common movies that everybody knows and they hear the reference because it was notorious. It, it was designed to be the place. It, it was the end of the road for inmates, you know? It, it was for the worst of the worst of the worst. We had the security housing unit, um, which was basically 23 days lo- or twenty-three hours a day lockdown. Um, and you came out an hour a day to hit the shower and get a little bit of uh, time on the yard, which the yard was you know a concrete, you know yard that's not real big, they get a little bit of sunshine, but it wasn't direct light. It was indirect light. So it was designed to separate the gang leaders from the rest of the gang so that they couldn't communicate and run their criminal you know organization, the criminal cartels. and it it worked really well for that. Even now, right now I work in the investigative services unit. Um, I work on the internal affairs side, but I work in the same group of people that investigate the inmates. And our level of drugs and contraband that come into this institution is so much lower than any other prison. We go to trainings throughout the state and then we talk to people and, you know, they talk about the drugs that, you know, people try to smuggle in and the cell phones and things like that. And our numbers are substantially lower. And I think it's because of our physical location. You know, it's harder to get somebody to drive all the way up here to try to smuggle something in than, you know, if it's a 10-minute drive going to one of the institutions around Sacramento where there's like five, you know, within an hour of Sacramento. So it, it isolated the bad guys for, you know, a lack of better terms. You know, we put them in Siberia.
0: The the Siberia of California?
1: Yep. It's been in, you know, like I said, referenced in movies, um, MSNBC had a, a liking for us for a long time. They they did a lot of documentaries based out of Pelican Bay. And it's, it's become a, a huge deal having people locked down that much, 23 hours a day. And so there's been a lot of uh, even celebrity support to try to end that. You know, society doesn't get to see the whole thing, I guess, the whole big picture on what these guys are about. They're just seeing these guys that are rehabilitated and things like that, and you know, they don't like it. And they they endorse and support getting them out. So um, our mission has changed quite a bit just since I've been here, um, but we're still level four. You know, we still have maximum security inmates and inmates are inmates, man.
0: They do what they do, doesn't matter. Like you, you've got both sides of public safety here. Well, I, I guess be the triad, EMS, fire, and then really law enforcement, corrections. I kind of lump in the same thing because, I mean, you guys are essentially there to, uh, well, keep the peace, right? Keep the yeah, keep the I mean, bad guys in place.
1: <laughs> keep the bad, and that's that's our number one priority. Um, in fact, you know, I remember it from 21 years ago, 22 years ago, that was one of the first things they tell you. It is not your job to punish the inmates. The judge handed down the punishment and that's to be in prison. Your job is to keep them there. The most important thing you can do is count them. I actually started out um, working in EMS here in this county uh, where Pelican Bay is. Like I said, I, I was raised here. I grew up here. So at 18 years old, I was coming through the Sally Fort into the prison to pick up inmates. And uh yeah it was it was kind of a a different thing you know being a kid when I say I started in 1996 in April of 96 I didn't graduate high school till June of 96 so I mean I was a high school kid doing this you know um it was crazy being 18 years old working full-time on a 911 you know ALS ambulance it was unheard of um but it was cool you know it was a great experience
0: so now that you're like right there let's kind of rewind just a little bit because before I get into really what you're doing now I kind of like to get an idea of what led you to what you're doing now did you grow up right there like near Pelican Bay
1: yeah Uh, I mean that my parents house where they still live you know they're just four or five minutes from the institution I mean um, but it's such a densely populated forest area that you don't really know that the prison's there. And, but don't get me wrong, when it when they put the prison in, it was an issue. And a lot of the community had a lot to say about it. Um, nothing positive, you know, they didn't want it. Um, but realistically, it's kind of kept this community afloat over the last, you know, 30 years as the timber timber industry and the fishing industry have died due to regulations you know, this is kind of what we got. Yeah, I grew up here. Um,
0: what did what did your mom and dad do?
1: My dad, his second career, he he um, actually grew up in this community as well, and he grew up in the era where um, fishing and logging was, you know, the industry. That's you know what paid the bills, and it, it did well. And he actually uh, drove truck. Gosh, I think he started out like um, driving around the yard. You know at the truck yard at like 14 years old servicing trucks and then just started driving when he turned 16 he did that until he was in his 30s and he retired from that and went to the academy and he actually worked in corrections for 23 years now he worked here at pelican bay so that's kind of what
0: got you into corrections huh?
1: kind of the opposite there's kind of a funny story with that um almost exactly one year before i graduated from the academy I was standing in my parents' kitchen and my uncle had just graduated from the academy. And my dad was there and they're like, hey, what are you going to do it? And I'm like, I'm never going to do it. There's no way in hell that I'm ever going to work in prison. I love what I do. You know, I get to drive with lights and sirens, you know, chase fires, you know, help people do technical rescues. Uh-uh, no way. And I think it was like, 368 days later, I graduated from the academy. Having a kid changes things. That year actually, and it was the summer of 99, uh, I ended up on a fire uh, east of here. I was there for several months uh, as a medical unit leader. I went over to be a line EMT and then something happened and boom, I'm the medical unit leader and I ended up being there forever. Uh, It seemed like forever anyways. My first son was on the way and I'm like I just this is no way to live and raise a kid so I got to do something different I got to shift gears here and so. Corrections is always hiring so I put in an application and at that point it was like a three to four year process to get hired and like I said from the day I turned my application in to graduation was like 11 months because like a it was like a month after. I was standing in my dad's kitchen telling everybody, ah, there's no way I'm never going to work in prison. That I found out, you know, I had a son on the way. And so I put an application in just because, and then that fire happened, the big bar complex out of Orleans, California. And I'm like, yeah, I I can't do this. You know, I have to change my mind and I'm going to have to, I'll I'll just go do it for a little bit. 22 years later. And so that kind of led me to that point where, it was about a year that it took me to graduate. Um, my background was super clean because of everything I'd done. I mean, the one thing I can say in my life, you know, talk about growing up and stuff, my parents were always my biggest supporters. Um, if I showed an interest in something for more than a couple of days, you know, they they absolutely supported me. That was a big deal for them because, you know, they, did, they didn't have an endless supply of money. And so sometimes they would individually go without, you know, something that they wanted in order to make sure that, you know, I had what I wanted. But as far as supporting me, they were awesome. I mean, I couldn't ask for better parents. And like I said, they supported my endeavors. And, you know, I was always busy, even in high school, you know, and before I got my driver's license, my poor mom, man, she was always picking me up at two o'clock in the morning from You know, the school because I got off the bus because of a track meet, or I mean, who knows what we're doing. And, you know, then she's up two hours later going to work. So I, I, yeah, I I said I I couldn't ask for better parents, more supporting people in my life. And, you know, they supported me going to corrections. You know, I'm pretty sure that my mom would rather I'd done something else, you know, being her son. She doesn't want her baby boy out doing prison stuff or fire stuff or ambulance stuff. But, again, always been a big supporter and always, you know, encouraged me and, and never, you know, tried to stifle my, my career or anything. Just kind of just always pushed me.
0: Now, um, do you have any siblings?
1: Um, I have one sister. She's seven years older than I am. And actually for a period of time, she worked in the department of corrections as a nurse. Um, okay. Her husband still works for the department of corrections. Um, they don't work here. They worked out of Corcoran, California. Actually, they live in Hanford. I'm not, exactly sure what uh institution my brother-in-law is at now he just transferred not too long ago but our bread and butter over the years has kind of become corrections you know I mean it just is what it
0: is since your dad wasn't really in fire how how did you end up being with the fire department and doing EMS
1: so I always kind of had a an idea that I wanted to end up in uh Law somehow, either law school or you know attorney lawyer or something like that. But I never put a whole lot of focus on it. you know i I'm big, and i'm I'm horrible about it. I focus on today. And you know, so in high school and stuff, I was focused on what I had going on right then, and I didn't look at that big picture of all the you know the checklist of things you need to do to get into a law school or whatever.. Um, And then my senior year kind of snuck up pretty quick. And the first part of my senior year, we had great snow that year up in Oregon. So I spent a lot of time at Mount Bachelor snowboarding and we had great surf. So I spent a lot of days surfing and in turn, I missed a lot of school. Um, And then it kind of hit, you know, I kind of had this epiphany that, hey, dummy, you're graduating from high school in six months. You're an adult you have to figure out a way to take care of yourself. And so I was kind of working part-time in a coffee shop. Um, A friend of mine, uh, her parents owned it, and I was helping them out. And uh, somebody I went to high school with came in and was talking about the EMT class. I was getting ready to start. And I'm like, well, I'd probably do that. And so uh, I reached out to a gal, Cindy Henderson. Um, She put the class on. She was a, a great paramedic, still is a great paramedic. And she was actually the operations manager for uh, the ambulance company that I ended up going to work for. So I called her like, hey, I want to get in your class. And she's like, OK. And in the meantime, I kind of decided that I was going to apply for uh, wildland fire positions. Uh, and kind of go that route, which, the, again, having the EMTs is always going to help. But that year, I actually missed the, the application deadlines. We were going through the class. And then one night, you know, Cindy's like, hey, uh, I have a, a position open at, at the ambulance company if anybody wants to apply. And so, you know, I applied and they're like, hey, you're hired. I'm like, hey, I'm still in high school. And they're like, we'll work around it. Um, you know, small town, small community stuff. I do 48 hour shifts. And, you know, by labor code, it, gosh, people would lose their minds now. But at that time, we called it a work experience field trip, overnight field trip which would happen three times a week. Yeah. And I got into it and I kind of dug it, you know, so that kind of became my main staple and, you know, fire was kind of on the side or I would, uh, use EMS to, to get into fire. You know, like I said, as a metal feed leader, line EMT or, you know, whatever they needed at the time. So yeah, it was, it was good. And then I stayed on with my volunteer department and kind of, I I hate to say played there, but you know, there's a lot of different stuff in a rural community. I mean, we rescued a cow at one point. I mean, just crazy weird stuff, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I, it came to be is I, I kind of screwed off my senior year and kind of left myself with very few options and uh, ended up enjoying it. You know, worked with a great crew, couldn't beat the crew, um, worked with some awesome pilots over the years. Um, one uh, guy, Harold, amazing pilot, and I kind of got to the point where I'd only fly with him. And everybody's like, hey, why do you only fly with Harold? Because he's crashed airplanes like three times. And they're like, so you want to be with the guy that can crash? I'm like, no, I want to be with the guy who can crash and live. <laughs> and they're like, I never thought of it that way. You know, so, but he was a great pilot. You know, I worked with great nurses, had a lot of fun, saw some horrible things. I mean, both roads in and out of this community are absolutely Uh, treacherous. I mean, our our motor vehicle rate is through the roof, 199, which is kind of how you go east of here. Um, At least two or three times a year, we end up with cars in the river. Um, It's just twisty, turny, narrow. Uh, And the department actually that I'm on now, we have the water rescue team. And uh, so it's our divers usually end up in the river uh, doing recoveries. Because um, typically at that point the rescue is not an option. So again, I work with a couple of great divers. How they do it, I don't know. Every time they're called, they go down. They, you know, they recover the bodies. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how it kind of came to be.
0: I'd like to dig in a little more uh, on the the corrections side of things. Maybe we can touch on like uh, mental health. A lot of times, you know, uh, some of my conversations will. Uh, shift to like PTSD um, which is pretty common in, in public safety and corrections and um, it's a it's a little bit different than uh, the the PTSD that veterans experience because a lot of times unless they're like a combat vet that has seen a lot of combat and there's multiple incidents you know, traumatic incidents that they've been through, which I think would be more like complex PTSD, but then you get into, um, if you look at public safety, anybody that's made a career in public safety has been on the front lines of some traumatic events and seen a lot of horrible things. But one thing being in fire service, I, you know, I've never really been uh, close to any corrections officers. I mean, I've gone and transported people from from a jail and uh, different intake centers around the county I live in. But for the most part, I never really, you know, I've never talked to anybody about what kind of things you see behind bars and like when you're in a maximum security facility it's just you and you're locked in there with all the bad guys and so the stuff that you see not only are you at risk you know and i mean i don't know what experiences you've had but i know that if you haven't had any scary times uh you know somebody that has (laughs) Um, oh yeah
1: you know you you can't go through this career Without having scary times, um, especially working—you know—the the two institutions I've worked, there, uh, notoriously, they're notoriously—they're violent prisons. Um, you don't end up here um, or High Desert because you sold too many, you know, Boy Scout cookies or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just—you um, earned your way there, you know, as an inmate, and typically that involves violence. When I was a high desert, so it it had just opened a couple of years before I came to the department and it's kind of the unofficial thing that uh, when there's a new institution, a new prison that's opened. I use the word institution, it's it's the technical term for prison that we use. So I go back and forth. So I apologize for that. But when we open a new institution. That's every all the rest of the prisons opportunity to kind of look around and go all right, we're getting rid of the guys that we don't want to deal with because they're just pains in the asses. You know, they're the ones that are always causing us to have to deal with stuff and write reports. They break sprinkler heads off in the cells, um, which if you break a sprinkler head off in a cell and you put enough plastic at the bottom of the door, you turn a cell into a swimming pool. Um, Seen that a couple of times, interesting. So they flush all these inmates to the new prison. And so that whole prison is... Uh, consistent of everybody's problem children, Um, which makes for one big giant problem, a lot of violence. Um, So like from the get-go, went to Susanville, never been there before. I just, I took the assignment and what the heck, sounds great, let's do it. Um, Got over there and you go through new new employee orientation for um, five days and I didn't make it to five days. I made it day two and they pulled us out of orientation to go deal with a riot because uh, one of the facilities, one of the yards had gone off, had a big riot. And so they needed all the hands on deck and that was the end of our new employee orientation. So, I mean, it was, it was literally right out the gate that, you know, things took off. I've seen, you know, a, a number of murders occur, um, riots, uh, staff assaults, um, I've been assaulted. It's a weird place to work, you know, and even on the outside law enforcement, and so I work with outside law enforcement a lot through my career, either ambulance, fire, um, corrections, uh, or I've even done just, you know, side work for them, you know, and it's totally different than prison, all the way down to what we have. We get checked at the the entry and exit points because I mean when you go inside the facility, you can't have any metal objects because inmates can turn it into a weapon. You can't have your phones, um, uh, tobacco, there's just this whole list of things that you can't have. And so a lot of people kind of they feel weird about that, or we'll have. Um, federal agents come that need to interview an inmate and we tell them okay you got to go ahead and bench your weapon here at this mini you know sub armory and they're like what do you mean i don't get to take my gun no you don't get to take your gun but there's inmates in there yeah and they they just don't grasp that concept that yeah you don't get to take a gun and so it's hard for them and so even some of the you know righteous federal agents are kind of like Pretty uncomfortable the first time they come into a prison you know they feel they feel naked without their their firearm you know we do have firearms on the inside um a very limited number and they're all in elevated positions the inmates there's just no way for them to have access to those positions and that just oversees the yards and then the housing unit day rooms prison i mean it's i can't say that every inmate that i've ever ran into is just this horrible evil monster. I mean, I can't say that, you know, people make mistakes, they end up in prison. Some people want to do the right thing and get out and go on with their life. Work at the two prisons I've worked at, most of them are involved in criminal enterprise in some way, shape, or form. Um, You know, maybe they're a low level street gang member when they came into prison and then they worked their way up, you know, through organized crime and, and become somebody, become a leader. You know, and it's just kind of interesting, you know, how that works. And the thing is what a lot of people um, have a problem with corrections. They say, oh, we we do this to the inmates. And and we don't. Like segregation, we don't segregate the inmates. They segregate themselves. And race is always, you know, a big part of their segregation. Um, Even they have internal segregation like Hispanics there's different groups. If you're from Northern California, you're in this group. If you're from Southern California, you're this group. You know, it's, but we don't do that. They do that amongst themselves. And um, so that leads to a lot of violence because there's always struggles for, you know, um, mainly contraband. Um, the drug sales, um, it's, it's huge money in prison. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Like I said, we we have the investigative services unit that um, my my partner and I we're based out of there. But there's a larger group of individuals that every day that's what they're doing. They're chasing contraband, they're chasing down phone calls, um, letters that come in that you know have information about contraband in it. And man, those guys are amazing. I, I absolutely love those guys in the investigative services unit. They they run hard, they work hard. The stuff they find is, is absolutely mind-boggling, um, but it be kind of be, that becomes their world. You know, they're they're so deep into it that that's what they eat, breathe, sleep. You know, chasing that stuff. And so I know a lot of them have issues because you know they they have to start thinking like a gang member, and you know some of them that stay in the unit for 15, 20 years, it definitely has an effect on them. You don't really realize it, I guess, as you're coming up through the department, you know, seeing the violence. I I talked about the riots and staff assaults. You kind of don't realize it. It, That's starting to weigh you down, weigh you down, weigh you down. Um there's the analogy of it's like wearing a backpack and somebody puts a rock in the backpack every time there's an incident. And before you know it, your backpack's full. and that's that's kind of how it happens. I mean, you don't realize what's going on. Our suicide rate is unbelievable. Uh, it, it's horrible. Yeah, that one's just kind of a tough one for me to talk about. Um, because some really, I, I'm really great individuals, you know, that we've lost because of this stuff just gets to them. So that that whole PTSD aspect is the way the culture was when I was coming up was you just suck it up, you know. And it was like that with everything. You know, like I said, EMS, fire, law enforcement. that That's the way we dealt with things. Like, you dust yourself off, you come back to work. We're not going to cry about it. We're not going to just, that's the way we're going to do it. Um, and so you never process things, you know. And uh, so one of the big benefits to working for uh, California Department of Corrections is over the last I'd say decade, they've started realizing that there's a problem, you know, that our staff aren't the healthiest when it comes to PTSD and things like that. I mean, they they told you in the academy, you guys are going to have the opportunity to retire at 50 years old. By 52, you'll be dead. We had an 18-month survival rate outside of retirement. 18 months, that's crazy.
0: what is that mainly attributed to? Just the uh,
1: just carrying it. Um, so pretty much everybody from my amount of time. So I'm twenty one, twenty two. So about anybody without about seventeen years or more in the department has blood pressure and heart issues, including myself. Um, the stress is just so much. I mean. We don't realize it, but when we walk through the gate, your whole body, your the, the metaphysical reaction that happens in your body is amazing, and not in a good way. It's your blood pressure instantly goes up because when we're in here, um, Your the term, I think it was, um, it doesn't matter who coined it, but you're hyper aware, hyper alert, hyper focused, hyper prepared. Because you know, the inmates, they have 24 hours a day to figure out how to get what they want and get over on us. Uh, we go through the sally port, it's two gates. You know, you, you walk to a little entrance building, you show them your ID, you go to the first gate, it closes. You so now you're in the Sally port. And it's just kind of weird. I've talked to a lot of people when that second gate opens, where you're now walking into the institution, you you just change. You're instantly hyper-aware, hyper-prepared, hyper-focused because the inmates, you know, they spend all day, you know, how are we going to get over on these guys? If if we want to hurt them, how are we going to hurt them? Most of us, when we leave here, we try not to think about prison. You know, it doesn't always work that way, but we try. So that level of constant um, hyper-awareness, it, it has a physical effect, you know your your blood pressure's up, which is bad for your arteries, bad for your heart, um, bad for your kidneys. and so it just it has its toll on your body. And like my dad's era, their thing was work as much overtime as possible. make as much money as you can, spend as much time as you can in prison. And then these guys would retire, and they'd have nothing. They would have all these toys that they bought but their family didn't have anything to do with them because they spent all those years focusing on prison that their relationships had drifted away. And so now they're retired with a bunch of toys that are now 10 years old, no friends, no connections with family. And so they have nothing. And a lot of times, you know, I've seen a lot of them drink themselves to death because they didn't have anything else to do. So now working for the department, they're they're seeing that that's an issue. And they're also seeing that our staff being this way, having um, heart problems and blood pressure issues, it costs them money through uh, the workman's compensation process. Um, Because after five years uh, in California, um, in law enforcement and corrections, if you have anything cardiac related that occurs, it's automatically, it's presumptive liability on your agency. So, I mean, that costs a ton of money, you know, to the taxpayers. So they're like, hey, we got to come up with something else. And one of the things that they came up with was, and it, it's been around for a really long time, but they've kind of fine tuned it. And it's the peer support program. Um, it, when I came in, it was called employee post trauma program. And, but it had the acronym TP in there. So it was a joke nobody took it serious. They're like, ah, you need TP. And so nobody put a lot of thought into it. And in fact, if you asked for it, hey, I need E.P.T.P.," you were kind of a punk, you know? Nobody would necessarily say it out loud, but you got treated differently. Um, So you just sucked it up. And so now they kind of revised the program to a peer support program and it's all peer based and, But we have close connections with therapists and counselors, alcohol rehab centers, you name it. We just have a list of resources available that's phenomenal. And I say we because I ran the the team at Pelican Bay for several years. I saw some great things and I saw some horrible things, you know. I mean, I, I saw a lot of success stories, you know, people who were pretty much down to their last shot, you know, and now they're doing great. And then I saw some that, no matter how much help we gave them, you know, they they just destroyed themselves. I'll kind of sidebar a little bit. That's how you and I met was because I was running the peer support program for a, a really long time, um, and there was kind of a, a high ranking administrator out of headquarters out of Sacramento that I had to deal with frequently, and so we communicated and checked in on each other because that was always the joke who checks in on the peer support team leader because that's our job is to check in on everybody else who checks in on us so it became a thing where we'd buddy check each other hey you doing good yeah i'm good and then kind of out of the blue i got an email one day and she's like hey you're not doing good your your emails are different when we talk on the phone it's different what's going on I don't know. I got some stuff going on. I don't want to get into it. She's like, well, who are you going to get into it with? I'm like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And then when I came to internal affairs, I had to give up the team because it was, you know, contradictive for me to have to be the bad guy and then turn around and be the one who offers you assistance. Um, So I had to give up the team and the person who ultimately ended up taking it over, she herself the prior year had attended uh Sacred Mountain Retreat Center. And that was part of her deal was I'll take the team over, but you need to go to Sacred Mountain. I'm like, yeah, sure, not a problem. Um, you know, and I kind of had some small meltdowns, and I uh my girlfriend kind of told me, Hey, you need to do something. You're not right. So, you know, and I talked to her about, you know, the retreats and she's like, yeah, you need to go, you know, I'm like, but at that point, I still didn't see that I had a problem. I was hundred percent. I was perfect. Nothing gets to me. It all slides off. I I just told everybody, yeah, you know, I'll go to a retreat and with COVID happening, retreats were hard to get into. And so I just kind of blew it off. And every time one of them would ask me, hey, have you gone to re- a retreat yet? No, 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 uh, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm, I got a thing coming up, I can't, I can't take the time off. And so that went for about a year of just, no, 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 no. And then through the grapevine, I heard that Sacred Mountain was full for the spring uh, session. And so to make everybody happy, I filled out an application. I'm like, look, I'm filling out an application. I'm going to send it in. In the back of my mind, I knew it was full. So I wasn't going to get in. And then two weeks later, I got an email from Tara congratulating me that I now had a spot for the spring class of Sacred Mountain Retreat Center. I was like, what? You know, my game just failed me. But by that point, I had started seeing a lot of problems in myself. Um being able to kind of like reflect and realize that I've destroyed every personal relationship in my life. That's what, you know, um, I've been divorced twice, um, struggled relationships with my children, um, family. You know, I don't communicate with family much, friends. You know, at that time, I pretty much said, I don't there's only two people on this planet that I would consider friends. The human psyche isn't built to work that way without, you know, friends and loved ones. You know, we, we, we're we not designed to be isolated on an island by ourselves. And so I'm like, you know what, I'll go and I'll, I'll check this out. And I wasn't, I'm going to be honest, Dave, I wasn't 100% into it. You know, I, I get up early and I fly and I go to fly from Medford, Oregon to Denver, Denver to uh south dakota i get there and i'm like man this is stupid i don't want to be here and then i see this guy with a dog and i try to talk to him and he's being an asshole doesn't want to talk to me he's all quiet and shit. i'm like dude where's our ride and like, i don't know man
0: <laughs> like he, he's um, uh, speaking of me
1: <laughs> yes yes, <I> am, Dave. <laughs> i'm glad you cleared that up because i didn't want to say it um <laughs> you know, but that's where the journey began, man. And it was, uh, it was good. It was good. And, you know, and I know you agree. It was probably one of the uh, more influential things that's ever happened in my life, you know, but just kind of getting to that, you know, one of the things when we were there, um, one of the things that I asked you guys towards the end was don't, Make me have to receive another phone call that somebody took their life because I can't do it anymore. And I even kind of surprised myself when I started listing off all the people that I've lost in this career. And I kept going and going. And just so I would think, oh, I'm done, another name would pop in my head and then another one. And I'm like, man, I've lost a lot of people, really good people, you know, that this just got to them, you know. And the department's changed over the years, corrections, you know, when I start out or started out, you, you kind of had to be Bobby Badass. I mean, that's just what the expectation was, you know, cause we have some pepper spray and a, at that time a side handle baton, a PR24 uh, side handle baton and pepper spray. So one of the little cans about that big was pretty much worthless. And so when things got sideways, There was a lot of fighting that occurred. You know, you you had to get physical with these guys. When I was a high desert when I was first coming up, I remember a day where there were uh 14 violent incidents in a 24 hour period. So that's a lot. If you think about that, you talk about PTSD and um being a combat medic and things like that, you know, a combat veteran. And I I hate this statistic. Because I feel like I'm taken away from somebody, but it's just a number. About four years ago, um, there's a gal out of uh, Colorado Springs, uh, Katrina Spinara, she runs uh, Desert Water Oasis out there. It's, it's a retreat, um, for, it's all corrections based. But she just a statistic that people who work in corrections in one year will see more violence. Than somebody who does a 20 year military career. So we see that in one year, what most people see in, in, in 20. Um, law enfor- or street law enforcement, the same thing. It's we're going to see in six months, they see in their entire career. And then we end up doing 20, 25 years of that. And uh, it gets to you, it weighs you down, you know, and then you're losing people. And then running peer support. I didn't realize that that was so impactful on me, you know, because everybody else's problems become my problems. And the, the program's not meant to be that way, but in order to effectively do it, I think you have to make the, the person's problems yours to some degree in order to effectively help them. Needless to say, you know, my backpack was full of rocks, man. It, it was, it was overflowing. And I didn't know it. And I, and I didn't realize either what was causing it. know so i've seen people get murdered oh well you know it happens every day um i've seen my partners get assaulted i saw myself get assaulted working on the ambulance and fire you know you, you see horrible things there too you know but you think that you're good with it and you you're not though there's something that slowly and i i know there's a ton of uh professionals who've done studies on it and have really great big words for it and stuff but just slowly your your mind just kind of starts shutting itself off and cutting everything else out cutting family out um friends out to the point where um you know there's a family function a, a somebody's birthday party a kid's birthday party and everybody's in the middle of the backyard and you're as far away in the backyard as you can be and your answers are short. Hey, how have you been? Good. You like your new truck? Yeah.
2: So, have you seen Uncle Bob? Mm-mm.
1: And you do that to push people away from you because you're uncomfortable talking to people. And like I said, for years, I didn't see it, man. I just didn't see it. Um, But once you do see it, you can't unsee it. And you realize how how broken you've become. And so you try to reflect and think, okay, what was that one incident that caused this? And there isn't, it's, you know, it's a cumulative thing in corrections because we see so much of it continuously. You know, just, I'm actually in my office. I had to come and do some work today and I'm listening to the radio and there's already been stuff happening this morning just since we've been on here, there's been two incidents. So it's just always ongoing, it never stops. Kind of leading to where I'm at now in internal affairs, it's messed up, but it's the best job I've ever had. Um, I I don't enjoy having to find out bad stuff about staff members, I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy when um, my inquiries, into an incident results in somebody getting terminated. I I don't enjoy that, I hate that, That, that's horrible. But the amount of violence I see is a lot less. Um, I work in a a small office, there's three of us, um, uh, myself, uh, my Lieutenant and our office tech. Um, And so we're kind of excluded from a lot of that. And like I said, my partner, he's great. He's, he's like a, just another version of me. I mean, his mind thinks the same way. And, um, so we work really well together. Um, and I just like have this whole, like relief, I, I guess, that I, I don't walk inside the gate every day anymore. You know, my, my office is out in the administration building on the outside of the secure perimeter. Um, and when I say secure perimeter in California, um, a majority of the prisons have the lethal electrified fence, which is a three 3 fence system. It's two chain link fences with a lethal electrified fence in the middle, 16 wires, um, touch it and bad things happen. And that's where that sally port is that you go in and out that when that last gate clanks behind you, your whole body changes, your, your, your whole mind changes, physically you change, your muscles tighten up, your heart beats a little bit faster, little weird thing going on in your stomach and of your stomach that you can't, you know, explain. And I don't, I don't have to do that every day, you know, and I'm fortunate and I'm very grateful, you know, for that opportunity to not have to deal with that. Um,
2: you know, and it's, hard to explain you know like you said you you don't get it
1: you want to get it um, and and it's hard it's difficult to explain because you know the second that gate shuts who knows what's going to happen you know Um, and so you try to minimize it and then that makes it worse too Um, in fact I kind of talked about the Sally Port. I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this or not, but hopefully my dad doesn't know how to get on your website and and watch this. Um, But when I was a kid, uh, Department of Corrections, we have three shifts, first, second, third watch. First watch starts at 10 o'clock at night, goes till six in the morning. Second is six to two and then two to 10. And my dad worked third watch. So he worked two in the afternoon till 10 at night. And back then they had to wear, uh, a full Class B uniform, long sleeve shirt, and a tie. And there was a clip-on tie, but it was kind of a joke in the house growing up. We could set our watches by my dad putting on his tie because there was this mental thing that he knew the second he put that tie on, he was walking out the door to work and he was coming to prison. And so the second he would clip that tie on, he would start dry heaving. And it was the same time every day. It was between one thirteen and one fifteen. That's that. I mean, it, it's just weird, you know. Now realizing why he did that, you know, huge respect for my my old man for for coming in here and doing that, you know, because for something to have that powerful of an impact on your your body and your mind, where you dry heave every day when you're getting ready to go to work, but yet you still come in here to take care of your family. You know, I, I had nothing but respect for that, you know, but it's a really good illustrated example of how this environment impacts you. There's a a study out by Dr. Uh, Gil Bronson. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, and he talks about the, the cycle that we go through. And you're, you're way up here, you know, you're hyper alert, hyper prepared, hyper focused. And you go through that. And then you drop back down. Well, it takes 48 hours for your body to get back down to a normal level. Well, we only get 48 hours off. So you never get to a normal level. You're always up here. And it just has a horrible effect on your body um, and your mind. Um, and I remember watching that because it's a video he does a, a uh, through California Post. Uh, he did a training video. And, he, you know, he talks about the guy in the corner of the yard, not wanting to talk to anybody. And, uh, he never says, Oh, that guy's a good guy. Or that guy's, you know, an okay guy. Everybody's an asshole. Oh, that guy's an asshole. He's an asshole. He, and so he does this whole thing. And when you're brand new, you're like, I don't get it. But then every year goes by and you start getting it a little bit more and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there to not get that way. One of them is, you know, retreats or um, counseling. You know, a lot of people look down on counseling and it can be a good tool though. Um, it's it's a way to go talk, you know. Um, I'm super fortunate, you know, having gone to uh, Sacred Mountain when I did and meeting you and the rest of the group, I talk to you guys all the time, I mean, like daily. I I talk to at least one of you, you know, sometimes it's a joke or something funny, or I want to pick on Dave because Dave's an easy target. Sometimes talking to Craig. um, And like, it's not always bad stuff. You know, I'm not always dumping on you. You guys aren't always dumping on me. It's a lot of positive stuff too, but it's nice knowing that if I pick up that phone. You guys are going to answer. And I think that's one of the biggest things that you can have. And I've always told people that, you know, being the peer sport team leader, if you call me day or night, I'm, I'm going to answer and I'm going to be there. But they never got to see it. Where we lived together for a week, you know, and we got to see it. We got to see each other's dirty sides and bad sides and evil sides and all the little parts that are in us, you know, that make us who we are. But at the same time, we all shared and so nobody holds anything over anybody else. We're all equally messed up and broken, and um, just trying to get put back together. And it's cool to you know have our little group that you know we look out for each other, and you know we look forward to seeing each other. And yeah, so that that's a huge benefit. You Got to have something to do, you know, in your life besides work. You know, like you, you, you had have had a great career in the fire service, technical rescue stuff, man. I, I love seeing some of the stuff you've done, but that's more than an eight hour a day thing. I mean, right now I'm looking, you're wearing a shirt, it's a fire shirt, you know, there's that <laughs> joke too. <laughs> yeah. But I'm wearing a fire hat. So it's just, it's who we are, you know, like how many drawers of Navy blue shirts do you have?
0: Way too many. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, when we were in South Dakota, I laughed because it was every day. What shirt were you and I are going to put on that day? I, you know, I knew that that day you and I were going to be wearing navy blue shirts because that's what we have a ton of.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and it's it's part of who you are. But beyond that, you need to have something else. Um, again, hopefully, my dad can't figure out how to get on here. But when he decided to retire, he put in his paperwork to retire he was of age you know he had plenty of years in our, our pension was he was set for life um but he backed out like three times and i'm like you know i, I don't get it and so i talked to some folks and and they're like well what else does your guy have what does he have a side job i'm like what do you mean a side job oh, he doesn't have a side job he works in prison he makes good money they're like yeah but you need to have something and it kind of came down to that, you know, we ended up talking, I was running peer support at the time and I did a, a supervisory referral and made him go talk to a therapist, which that made Thanksgiving interesting that year, when you make dad go do it, when you pull rank on him and I joke, I, I didn't make him go do it, but I, I, I set the appointment up for him and I said, Hey, you know, I want you to go talk to this guy once, you know, and he did. And what he determined was he was scared to retire because he didn't have anything else. He didn't have anything to do every day you know starting out at 14 driving those trucks around the yard washing them greasing them getting them loaded till that point he had something that he had to do every day that was go to work he's he's a dune enthusiast he loves being in the dunes and side by sides and doing buggies and, but you can't do that every single day of the year and so him and that counselor he ended up actually seeing that counselor quite a few times. And, you know, and they kind of came up with a plan, you know, get a calendar, write something on every day, sweep the garage, uh, you know, fix this, fix that, sweep this, clean that, you know, whatever, but have something that you have to do every day. And, you know, that works for him, but I know that doesn't work for everybody. So one of my big pushes is is I encourage everybody to have some sort of productive outlet, you know, whether it's, Writing books and doing podcasts, which you have the face for it, I don't, but whatever. I have the face for radio, but it's having those outlets, and uh, again, not to you know, turn this into a, you know a, a sacred mountain show, but I bring it up a lot because that's where you and I met. You know that's where our bond started. Um, and that's where I saw you change. you know, not to turn this back around on you, but um, I saw a huge change in you. From that asshole who wouldn't talk to me for an hour. Sat in the back seat with his dog. His dog was awesome. Dog wouldn't have talked to me. Kept, you know, poking me in the ear with his nose. And then I'm like looking back there at you and you're sitting in the corner of the yard, you're an asshole. You're an asshole. You were that guy, you know, and you're Dr. Gil Bronson's, you know, guy. Yeah. Um to who we are now, we're, you know, we're sitting here, we're chopping it up, we're joking, and you know, we send each other texts and like the weird text you sent me last night was kind of strange. Like call me sweet cheeks or something. I'm like, Whoa. Um, but you know what I mean? It, it hasn't even been a year yet. It's been what, six, eight months uh. from that guy who wouldn't talk to me to who you are now and me super closed off. And, you know, I'm only going to tell you guys what I think you want to hear to, you know, throw it all out there. You know, that one day I think you'd sent a text message and you're like, hey, what's going on, buddy? And I sent you like a 37 page text message in return. <laughs> I got this, and I got that. And you're like, cool, well, you wanna talk? You know, you got time to call me? And uh, so it's, it's awesome. It's made a huge impact in my life. Um, you know, and of course the other thing, once I found that out about my dad not having anything to do, and that was his reason for not wanting to retire. Um, I made it a goal that every year I learn a new skill set. Kind of Sacred Mountain kind of turned us on to the whole knife making thing, and you know, so I've been doing that a lot. Um, been doing a lot of leather work. I got to get yours and Diane's in the mail. Um, but it's it's having that thing to do, you know, every day. You know, I, I I can go do something every day and have plenty of time. But we have to be productive about it you know you can't just go hide in it and for a little bit i kind of found myself doing that rather than sitting in the corner of the yard calling everybody an asshole i'd go out and work on a knife and just block the world off from me and i realized well that's not working either now you know my hobby is becoming counterproductive you know to my good mental health so we have to balance that you know and that that's that's something that i've seen so much um where people don't have that balance in their life and you know they don't know how to deal with it and you know that that's one of the most upsetting calls to get you know every call that one of your partners committed suicide is, is horrible it is but when a guy did 25 years working in prison and he commits suicide after his retirement you just don't get it it doesn't make sense you made it through the bad part you made it through the wars, you know, because some days our yards and prisons, they look like war zones. You know, there's days where they order every ambulance available in the county because the yard's blown up and staff are getting stabbed and people are getting shot.
0: I want to shift gears here for a second because you, you've said a lot Uh, surrounding PTSD and the effects of the job. And, I mean, you and I both know that if if you don't find a way to really deal and process with those traumatic events, they're never going to go away. They're never going to leave you. And when you retire and all you have is that, Alone time to think about all those horrible things that you've seen. And like i I would imagine that for a lot of those individuals that make that decision to take their own life, they've gotten to the point where the, that's the only way that they can get relief. That's the only way that they can they can really. Uh, fathom that uh, there is no other way that they can't see any other way to to put that shit to to rest so yeah which uh, saying all that i know what good leadership and bad leadership looks like in the fire service and in the military and in life you know but I, it's a completely different dynamic in, in the prison, being locked up and you're in inside these walls with people that most likely want to hurt you at some point, you know, and if you're the person that is in charge of, uh, I guess, a team of corrections officers like if, I don't know, is that like a sergeant position? Would you be a supervisor?
1: Yeah, so a sergeant, they're the first line supervisor. So yeah, you have like four yards, we'll say, A, B, C, and D yard. And they're usually like a lieutenant on all, uh, during second and third watch, and usually like three sergeants. And your your sergeant is the one who's boots on the ground, you know, leading the team, the the direct contact between management and your your correctional officers, your line staff. Yeah, when when things go bad, you know, it you're the one leading the way. You're the one that's kind of making those calls. You know, you're the one that is realizing we need more resources. We need we need an ambulance for a staff or an inmate who's been injured. Um, one of the kind of interesting parts about the way we do, it's called we, we call it alarm response. Um, when we respond to an incident, we have a a set way we do it. Um, and one of the things that we have incorporated into it is during alarm response, you the person running it does not have to be a supervisor, because there's a lot of people out there who've been doing this for a really long time, responding to riots, that are really good at it. They're just not a supervisor, and you have a supervisor that has no time in, or doesn't have any exposure to it. And so they can relinquish control to that officer. And then they step back and kind of help move the pieces. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, that's who's responsible. It, you know, is, is your first line supervisor which is going to be your sergeant?
0: So the sergeants are the ones that have, you know, daily interaction with the team and really needs to have an awareness of the mental and physical health of their people.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, having ran peer support for so long, that's where a lot of those phone calls came from were from first line supervisors, were from other sergeants letting me know, hey, you know, so and so is just not, something's wrong. Can you check on them? And like I said, about 10 years ago, the department started making this shift to actually put money into us. You know, we go through a a program every year. It's a resiliency training uh, that's actually, it was created by Katrina Spinaris out of Colorado Springs. Um, And so they started dumping that money, but that's also allowed the sergeants and the rest of the supervisors, it's helped them identify when staff needs help and help them identify that it's okay to get your staff help you're only benefiting yourself, you know? You're not telling on them, you're you're not quote unquote ratting them out or anything like that. Um, because for the longest time, there was this stigma that if your supervisor said you needed help because you were stressed out or something, it was gonna end your career. And there were some situations where that did occur throughout the history of the department, but they, they've given us um, that opportunity to try to help our people before we get to that point. And that's amazing. And it comes down to those first-line supervisors, the sergeants, and and even the lieutenants. They're they're on the facilities as well with the staff. But recognizing that that situation's there and, uh, and, you know, offering that support or even just offering it directly to the employee. Hey, what's going on, you know? Usually, you show up to work twenty minutes early every day, and for the last month, you showed up ten minutes late. Well, you know what's happening? What what changed? Giving supervisors the power to do that—you know—they've always had the power to do that, but giving them the mental clarity to do it, that they're not, you know, turning on their staff by asking if they're okay, is a huge thing. And you know, I think it's huge to know. A little bit about each one of your employees that works for you you know not saying you have to be up in their business and know every aspect of their life but in order to kind of gauge when they're doing okay and not doing okay you've kind of got to know who they are
0: well one one thing that i've said i've talked about this quite a bit is you know as as a supervisor as a leader you know if you want to be viewed and known as an excellent leader, you have to have that mentality and take on that ownership of this is my team. And the only way that I'm ever gonna be viewed as successful as a leader is to ensure the success, the success of my team. And the only way to ensure the success of your team really is to know your people and know how they view success. You know, is it that they wanna be promoted or is it that they just wanna survive 25 years and then be able to enjoy their retirement where it's more of like, I need to make sure that they're, you know, they're okay in the head. You know, that the stuff that they're experiencing isn't uh, killing them physically and mentally. And but you genuinely have to care about those people, and one thing that I'm I'm curious about in that in that type of organization where there has been a stigma, and, and I I I have a question here, really, real quick, in your role now in internal affairs where you are having to investigate other corrections officers, how often do you find that there could be a connection between their behavior and possibly some sort of mental health type of thing where they're, they've been struggling and because, as we both know, PTSD can lead to self-destructive behavior.
1: I don't want to say that it's you know a high percentage of the time because not every single thing that we um, you know conduct inquiries on are you know horrible things. Um, a lot of times we're we're just looking into whether or not you know somebody said something that was offensive to somebody, or but I can definitely say uh, that. I've seen people who make these poor decisions sometimes, and they're an example of you know that self-destructive behavior. And you know, and can I one hundred percent say that that self-destructive behavior is because of you know a direct effect of this job? No, I mean I can't say that, but um, it, I would say it's it's commonplace to. Um, have some sort of association you know between the two
0: and i'm just throwing out stuff here because i'm i'm thinking that in, in some cases where you know the supervisor they're you know they're accepting that obligation of ensuring the the success of their team and if that mental health aspect is neglected you know there is the potential that down the road one of their people is going to get into trouble and could end up losing their career and their livelihood Um, and it's not the supervisor's fault but if you take that role seriously as a leader you know you're going to be looking out for that kind of stuff
1: like i said what's kind of neat about the way our organization is set up is we we do have that peer support team and the The people who run it, the the team leaders have a unique relationship with management and the staff. Um, and it takes a lot of trust. you know you you ask those people for a lot of their trust and you know letting them talk to you or talk to management on their behalf and management to them on management's behalf. And it kind of acts as a buffer to help stop it before it gets to my office. For those supervisors to realize hey there's something going on there you know johnny he's just not right i don't know what the deal is but you know i heard rumors that he's going through a divorce or you know whatever you know, he always smells like alcohol yeah you know, i don't think he's drinking on duty but uh, you know i think he's just so you know drunk all the time after work that you know he's just sweating the stuff out yeah. and this is something i've actually heard before so that gives us the opportunity to go out and try to get that help. And some of them accept it. But no matter how good that supervisor is and recognizing that there's a problem, if that employee doesn't know that there's a problem, there's nothing we can do, you know. And, and, and- like I said.
0: And that goes to, yeah, that goes to effective self leadership, you know, and that's really tough when you're in that self-destructive mindset, you know, it's, it's almost like you need to be aware of the pitfalls of the job ahead of time and really check in on yourself regularly to make sure you're doing okay so you don't end up in, in one of those troughs, those mental right. troughs, you know?
1: And, and they're they're so easy to fall into, you know? Um, and I want to sit here and say that, you know, yeah, there's those people who just they don't have the foresight to realize that there's something wrong with them, but I've already dimed myself out when I told you that you know, I tried to avoid going to Sacred Mountain because I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. You know, and I had people telling me, hey, there's something wrong with you. Now you're crazy, you're an asshole. I'm gonna go sit on that side of the lawn, leave me alone. So I can look at myself and say, yeah, it's super easy to build that barrier, I guess, and say that I'm fine. You know, I I don't know what you're talking about. Um, For the longest time, as the peer support team leader, uh, every year we go through training. We have this annual training, 40 hours. All peace officers uh, for CDC have to do it. CDC, California Department of Corrections. And for a couple of years there, part of that curriculum was an, a uh, one hour class or two hour class. And it was staff suicide awareness. I made it my goal to teach every one of those classes. Because the way our our instructor thing is set up in the department is basically it's supposed to be that anybody can step in and teach that class that's certified to teach it. Um, But I felt that it was super important to have somebody there teaching that class that was invested in it. That wasn't gonna just stand there and read the words on the PowerPoint, but actually have conversations with the group and let them know that, hey, if I call you, I'm not out to burn you. That's because somebody is worried about you and they want you to have the advantages of, you know, getting through what you're going through and coming out the other side healthy as a good employee, a good, you know, family member, you know, good friend, whatever. And I think that really helped because there were a lot of other staff members here that had that same focus, that same thought process that if we can just open people's eyes, we can actually do something. There was a couple people, uh, a guy, his name was Dale, he was a lieutenant, and uh, he had that same philosophy, man, people first, put your people first. He was he was that guy. He, he retired a year ago. That's why I'm speaking to him past tense, because I don't love him anymore because he retired. Um, but I do, because he was a great guy. I learned a lot from him. And it was people first. Put your staff first. It's got to be about your staff. You know, if you want to be an effective leader, you've got to put your, your people first. And I've been fortunate that I picked that up from a couple people different times throughout my career, that you've got to put your people first. Not necessarily just corrections, but um, I left fire service for a while because I'm like, okay, I'm getting too old for this. I it hurts when I do this now. And um, when I transferred back to Pelican Bay, I kind of got okie-doked back into it. Um, you know, I was there's a bad fire season coming up and I was hit up. Hey, you know, we're kind of short folks at one of the smaller departments, and is that something you'd be interested in? I'm like you know what, I'll come give you guys one fire season, but I'm not teaching anybody. I'm not being anybody's big brother. I just want to be, you know, a yellow hat out there digging line. That's just what I want to do. I don't want to be anybody else other than that. And I'll give you one season. That was several years ago. And now I'm an officer and responsible for all the training. So, evidently, I didn't stick to my own word there. But, even there, you have to take care of your people. You know, they have to be a priority. And, and, and you know, I joked about the, the drawer full of shirts. But even something as trivial as that when a new batch of shirts comes in. And let's say I'm gonna say that most people wear an extra large shirt. So you only have enough to cover everybody except for one. So do you take the shirts because you're, you're an officer. I should have the new shirts and let that rookie wear old shirts. Or do you as an officer keep wearing your old shirts and give the rookie the new shirts. And I know that's really trivial and very rudimentary basic thought process. But it's a real good illustration of putting your people first. Now, you know what, kid? You take the shirts you're the one who's out there doing the work man not me i'm the guy who just tells you what to do i can do that in an old shirt and it's something that simple or um i'm big on feeding people i love to feed people um i think food cures everything um and so we'll have you know a big uh like a technical training and all kind of cut out towards the end and sometimes sacrificing get to do that cool thing because you know i mean when you put on the, a lot of the trainings i'm sure over the years kind of at the end is when the cool stuff's happening when everybody gets to you know see one do one and so i'll I'll give up the do one because a lot of times i've you know i've been through the training in the past just so i can cut out and uh go start you know feeding the people you know that way nobody's worrying about cooking or anything like that just you're done with training, cool, here's food, everybody sit back, relax, let's tell stories about the training and um, you see so-and-so cry like a girl and it just kind of brings everybody back together and it lets you kind of feel out how people are. You know, when that person who's usually, you know, the, the wise ass who's picking on everybody, when they're not saying anything, that's a pretty good indicator, hey, man, there's something going on, we need to kind of get to the bottom of this. And I think food, man, it just—it's just my philosophy that food fixes everything, man. You can you can get you can bring a team together um, with food because law enforcement, fire, uh, corrections, EMS, all that food's a thing. Because there's times where you don't get it, you know. You can be hungry, but if the world's going to hell, you don't get to eat. You suck it up and you deal with it. So. I think food just kind of brings people in and lets you really evaluate the people. And I know, you know, again, another crazy analogy, you're like, geez, man, what the hell is this guy on my podcast where he's talking about food and, but people relax when they eat and, you know, you can even go back to, you know, our time in South Dakota. And that's when a lot of barriers came down was when we were eating. That's when the little jokes happened. Or, you know, a little bit of conversation would happen between two people, which would open up to a broader conversation later on outside or in the, you know, the great room or whatever, because typically when people are eating, they're too busy eating to worry about hiding their feelings or, you know, putting up that wall, that barrier. So, you know, that's kind of been one of my things. And if everybody's all good and nobody's having any problems and, you know, it's all kumbaya and rainbows and unicorns and, you know, happy meals and all, but it still says a lot to your people when you take the time to, uh, you know, put a meal together for them, even if it's something simple, you know, but it's just another opportunity as, as a, an effective leader to see your people with their, their guard down and get a, a good measure of what's going on with them. Um, Cause you can't help them if you're not paying attention. Well, all too I, often, you know, people, people implode and their supervisors could have stopped it.
0: I don't know of anybody else that has done this, but I'm sure I'm not the first one. Um, it took me 20 years to figure it out. Um, but as a battalion chief, before I retired, I was responsible for six fire stations and I would get invites to have dinner. And a lot of times it would be, uh, I would get a phone call after the morning teleconference from one of the lieutenants invited me to come have dinner at the station. But the previous shift while I was doing rounds a different Lieutenant was like, hey, next shift, we're making this, so come have dinner with us. And I go, all right, I'll be here. So it started to become a thing where I would get invites, but it was after I had already accepted another invite. And uh, I just, I was like, you know what? I have been eating at these couple of stations a lot more than I have these other stations. And I want to make sure that all of the crews know that I do care about them. And, and I, like you cooking is one of those ways that I can show that I genuinely do care about these, these guys and gals, you know, and so I had it laid out where, okay, on on this day, I'm at this station. So Monday, and, and these are the numbers of the stations that were in my battalion 63, 66, 71, uh, 81, 83, and 85. So on, on Monday, I would eat at uh, 63 then Tuesday, 66, you know, and the way that, that went. So six stations, I was at one of them, you know, and we worked 24, 48 off. So every third day it was a rotating calendar. Right. And then on Sundays I would make dinner at one of the stations and it rotated. So every third Sunday I was making uh, dinner at a different station or breakfast okay. or whatever it may be. And it, it worked beautifully. Like it really, um, uh, as it started playing out, it really brought the battalion together and it was, it was pretty awesome. And I, and I really felt uh, welcomed by all the crews. And it was, you know, like um, that, like what you're talking about being able to sit back, goof around, find out what's going on in everybody's lives. What kind of drama is happening at the station with the different shifts and, you know, if there's, just whatever and like making sure that some of the younger guys are going to the the classes that they need to go to like not that it's mandatory but there's always additional training that people can get and the more you encourage them the more successful they're going to be and so that ties right into what you're saying but how does that work and corrections and and so this will be a two part uh, question here and I, I would like to wrap it up with this is as a leader in corrections, what have you found to be the most effective way to build high performing teams? And then what advice would you give to a brand new corrections officer on how best to make the most of a career and, and last?
1: You know, I've, I've actually been really fortunate that I've had the opportunity uh, on a couple different occasions to, to have groups of folks working for me that were just driven. I mean, they did, they did great work, you know, Um, we could spend a week talking about the different aspects of prison and Communication, you know, when when they were, you know, doing their daily work, because what it was, we worked in a a housing unit area. It was administrative segregation, and so there were four housing units um, with several staff members. Because being, you know, administrative segregation, there was a lot more safety precautions in place. um, Because they were there, the inmates were there, because they'd had an infraction inside prison. But at the same time, we also responded to every incident in the institution. Um, And so those folks, they got really good at responding and communicating. And the biggest thing was when that captain from another facility, when we'd respond to their yard, and do a great job. And you know, he'd pat me on the back. Hey man, you know, thanks for bringing your folks over. You guys did a stellar job. You made this a lot easier for us. Don't keep that to yourself. You know, you got to turn that right around and tell the, the crew, hey, kudos, man. We you guys just got, you know, Captain So and so talking, you know, good stuff about you guys, and happy that we came over and you know, thought you guys did a great job. Forward that, you know, positive information on. Y- you have to. If you're getting positive input, give it back to them. Be part of the crew. Don't isolate yourself. You know, you have to be part of it. You have to have that separation that you're not, you know, an equal because you are the supervisor. So you're responsible for more. And, you know, you're the one that's responsible for giving direction and they need to take that direction. But respect is something that's earned. You know, it's not given, And so, you know, and that comes from being boots on the ground, doing the job with with your crew and, you know, telling them when they did good and when they did bad, fix it. Don't just ball them out and tell them, oh, you guys are all a bunch of screw-ups. Hey, we could have done this better. I wish I would have seen this earlier so we could have fixed this and, you know, trained on it. But we didn't. So now let's fix it. Let's train. You know, try to make it, you know, a positive thing. You know, not trying to be, you know, millennial generation, everybody gets a trophy, that sort of thing. But um, there's definitely a time when you can turn a negative into a positive and make it, you know, something that people actually learn from and respect you. You know, hey, rather than screaming at us, he actually took the time to put a training program together for us to get us dialed in so that we know what we're doing next time so that we don't have that mistake where so-and-so could have got hurt or whatever so that's the biggest thing for me And, and, and that ties all right back into you know talk about eating and feeding and you know feeding your crew you know if if they just rock all day long you know like that group that responded to every incident if they were responding all day all over the prison I'd pick up the phone and I'd order a bunch of pizzas. Hey, let's get food out here. And you know, was I reimbursed for that? No, that that was out of my pocket and my partner's pocket. We paid for it. Um, but the work those folks did and, and they made me look good. It was you know well worth you know a couple hundred bucks here and there for some pizza. And, you know, but to them that was a really big thing because they knew it was coming out of my pocket. You know. And they knew that I had a couple kids and, you know, I didn't have tons and tons of extra money, but their efforts meant so much to me that I was willing to take some of that money and give it back to them in the form of food. And again, that would draw us all back together where we could sit and talk, find out who's got this going on, who's got that going on. You know, it's just you have to be part of the crew without being part of the crew, if that makes sense. You know, you you have to be the team leader, but you know you have to be, uh, you know, up on what's going on. Know that so and so kind of injured their shoulder a little bit, and we can't, you know, have them be a gunner today because that shoulder's a little bit sore and messed up because they did X Y Z one two three. So I know they're usually a gunner, but we're going to move them over here. We're going to pull one of the new kids, make him the gunner for the day, give him the opportunity to learn how to do this. But then in turn, empower that person who was injured and say, hey, I got to pull you off the gun today because you're injured. I'm going to give this new kid a shot to learn something. I need you to teach him the highs and lows of this job real quick. You know, empower them to be the next leader. Um, I believe that your subordinates, you should train them to do your job. And you should be training to do your boss's job that brings a lot of confidence into people when you have that kind of confidence in them that, hey, I'm gonna let you do an aspect of my job today. Not because I wanna be lazy, but I want to teach you how to do it so that someday you can replace me. And uh, doing that really boosts people's you know, confidence and it kind of changes their mood instead of screw this, I don't wanna do anything with you guys, you guys are a bunch of assholes, whatever, I'm gonna go sit on the side of the lawn. They're like, hey, this guy sees something in me, maybe I could be the next leader, you know. And so, I, I think that's huge, you know, empowering those folks and being on level with them. That's when I've had the most success, is when you know, I gave them the opportunity to excel and gave them the tools to do it and rewarded them for doing great things, and then. And turn trained them for making mistakes, you know. Rather than being the guy who stands there and yells, I had a lieutenant. Actually, it was during that time period that I, I'm talking about. He worked a different shift, and that's all that guy did was yell and complain. He came to work to find things that were wrong, and then complain about it and yell and write people up. It's hard to work in that environment,
2: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And it wasn't. I'm going to train you how to do that so that I don't have to write you up again. It was just, I'm going to ride you up and scream at you about it. That's not productive. I had no respect for him. There's lieutenants who have wrote me up and in the same breath asked me for something. I said, yeah, absolutely not a problem. You just booked me, but yeah, I'll give you a ride home tonight. You know, it's all in how you do it. And it's all about the respect and putting that team together, being part of it focusing on the positive but also putting focus on the negative and correcting it not just pointing it out and making people feel dumb and you're worthless you can't do shit no train them train them to be better don't let them make that mistake again you know train them to be better than you you know when that person replaces you let have them so well trained that people go damn wish you would have been the sergeant all along that last guy was a chump but then you get that gratification going, yeah, he is good, because, you know, self-gratification, I helped him get there, you know, or maybe I didn't have the ability to teach him those things, but I put him in contact with people who could teach him those things, to make him that much greater. Anytime you're respecting your people, they're going to respect you. At the same time, there has to be a fine balance, because anytime, and you know this, anytime you're just their friend and their buddy, and you're not Correcting things and you're not fixing things and oh you guys don't want to train today all right we won't train today they don't have respect for you you know there's got to be that fine line that fine difference between being a supervisor and not and you have to make sure that you know that that line's clearly delineated that you are the supervisor but you're there for them you're going to support them you're going to fix them you're going to help them and you're going to recognize when they need those things. I think that's the most important thing you can do as a supervisor, you know, train your replacement to be better than you. And that's, you know, kind of a tough concept for a lot of people because, you know, I want to be the best. Now train the best. If you can train the best, that means you are the best. That being said, you know, what would I say to somebody just coming in the department? There's opportunities. There's always opportunities for promotion or, you know, um to lateral uh, around a little bit you know we we, you can lateral transfer to another prison if you don't like where you're at or within you know we have the custody side where you have officer sergeant lieutenant captain associate warden chief deputy warden warden then you get in the director's level um then we have the counselor classification they're the ones who do the casework and calculate when these people are going to get you know paroled and what programs they need to be in that's a whole other classification you can get into. Take those opportunities, you know, put a memo in to do a uh, short-term acting time in that classification to see if it's something you like and you want to pursue. Take those opportunities uh, and just find out where you fit. Take this job serious uh, because it's serious what we do, but have something on the outside. Don't make this your life, you know, because the second you make this your life, it, you're you're gonna lose your your outside life you know you're gonna lose those connections with families and friends and hang out with folks that don't do this job you know if you're a correctional officer go hang out with firefighters or whatever just break it up so that your life isn't constantly about one thing what do they say variety is the spice of life uh sounds like something you would say not me but whatever i'm way cooler than that to say that kind of shit um but it's true though. Variety, you know, it's kind of what keeps your mind fresh and you're always learning new things. You know, and I talked about, you know, my dad, his retirement, me making sure that I try to learn one new skill set a year. That that makes my brain work so much better, you know, because you're always learning and you're challenging yourself and your brain's working. And so when you are working on stuff you've been doing for a hundred years, you're still moving better. You're You're catching things better. You're Finding your own mistakes. So, yeah, you know, take opportunities. And then, of course, specific to California Department of Corrections, I don't know if anybody else says it, but our thing is don't ever pass up on a test, a promotional test. If you have an opportunity to take a test, take it. Even if you don't want to do that job, you don't know what road life is going to lead you down where that might be a better fit for you. Even though you don't want to do it today, you might want to do it tomorrow. So, get on that list, you know, that promotional list. Take those opportunities and have a life outside this place because they'll eat you alive. As you know, you spent a week with a cynical asshole
0: from prison. Well, what was crazy is that while we were out there, there was two other corrections people out there with
1: us. Yeah, and they were from California Department of Corrections. one works at uh, an institution out of Sacramento and the other one used to work at that institution, Ryan.
0: It wasn't until you, all you guys started like talking about stuff that you'd seen that it really brought it home for me, like the, the stuff that you guys see. Because in, in my mind, you know, prison is like, okay, the contact that you have maybe like when you go to the, the cell door and go stick your hands through and you cuff them. And, and then when they're out in the yard, you got gunners up high and if they act out, you just shoot them, you know, but
1: <laughs> wow, that was totally wrong.
0: <laughs> so, but listening to you guys, it, it really right. informed me. And I think that people that aren't in corrections really don't know. What you guys have to deal with like no. it's just kind of stories but when you when you uh you guys were talking about what is it called um getting gassed or uh
1: yeah getting gas when you're assaulted by bodily fluids they throw urine and pcs and if they have access to chemicals you know like cleaning chemicals they'll throw that on you yeah, that's one of their go-to. They they love to do that, especially but, when they know they have a a bloodborne pathogen like hepatitis or something. Then they really love to do it. Uh, it's crazy. I, you know, and, and before before we started this, you know, you and I were chatting a little bit, and I was telling you about that you know experience where I was out and I was you know sitting next to some guys that were uh, commercial crab fishermen from Alaska. And it came up what we both did. And I'm like, oh my God, I could never do that. That's so dangerous. And you know, and they're like, no, oh, it's not. You work in a prison, that's dangerous. And I'm like, no, it's not. It, it's all perception, man. And, uh, but the bottom line is, yeah, it, it's not probably the safest career. Um, uh, I've probably taken 10 years off my mother's life because of my choices on where I work and what I do.
0: Pelican Bay is, is infamous for being this maximum security prison, but it's infamous because probably a lot of it's in, inmates, like who has gone through there, correct? Right. Like high profile prisoners.
1: Yeah, there, there's been, you know, a number of high profile, uh, inmates that have come through here. Um. And sometimes they end up here, uh, kind of like for their own protection, you know, uh, because they are such high profile. Or inmates have their own set of rules. There are certain things that are worse than others, you know. You can be a mass murderer, and you're okay. But depending on what you know, faction you're you're running with, you know what what group you've associated yourself with as far as inmate population goes um spousal abuse is not accepted and you know they they think of you as the low life but the guy who's killed 37 people and eaten their thumbs eh, he's all right you know it's just kind of weird how they they you know make up their own you know ideals and rules about that so yeah some of them been here to kind of like protect themselves or you know protect them from other inmates um A lot of, uh, like I said, the the gang leaders have ended up here um, to try to isolate them so that they can, you know, lose that contact with their criminal organizations and and hopefully slow down some of the criminal activities that were occurring. Um, And like I said, that's why we were built, you know, was was for that uh, specific purpose to uh, actually an associate warden uh, that I, I respect a lot he uses the term to cut the head off the snake. That's what Pelican Bay was designed to do, cut the head off the snake, take the leaders of the gangs, put them up here so that they couldn't continue to, you know, profit from their criminal enterprises. And it did its job um, for a lot of years. Um, laws have changed and, and rules have changed in policies and we can't do that anymore. We can't keep them, you know, locked up in the security housing unit for, you know, years and years and and that's kind of the transition we're in right now. So we're kind of going through a lot of changes and we're seeing a lot of changes and um, it'll be interesting to see how things go. I'm six years away from retirement and uh, kind of looking forward to it a little bit. You know, as we go through these transitions and changes, it's, it, it, it's hard sometimes to, I guess, you know, the proverbial teach an old dog a new trick you know, but we have to learn the tricks if we want to continue to do the job. And yeah, like I said, it'll be interesting to see what direction the department goes from here. The biggest thing is we have our stakeholders. You know, are the biggest thing, and that you know would be the folks in our communities and keeping them safe from the bad guys.
0: Steve, I I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me and well help inform the listeners and hopefully add some value to, to those out there. And, um, not just that, but be entertained a little bit, you know, uh, I feel like it was really good conversation that, uh, very interesting to me. So I'm, I'm sure that there's a, at least a handful of people out there that'll find it interesting as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Two or three, maybe, you know, yeah. um, for me, you know, having been doing this for so long, um, I forget just how unique this job is, and, and you know, there's 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 not a bunch of TV shows about us. Like there's firefighter TV shows and cop TV shows, but there's not a whole lot of prison guard TV shows. And actually, I was preparing a document yesterday for another uh, agency, and there were so many acronyms in it. I, I went to my partner, and I'm like, I can't send this document. To that agency because they are not going to know what this means because that that's one of our things we love acronyms, um, but that was a real you know good example of we're just so different from everybody else you know that yeah I'm glad we got to chat about it and, you know I'm glad you got to ask your questions and I'm sure moving forward you know you'll always have more questions because that's kind of who you are or I'll be complaining about something and you'll need me to explain it but yeah i mean hopefully the information's out there and you know and i hope that maybe some correctional officers see this and go hey you know what it's okay to have problems and it's okay to get help for those problems
0: well i think the the biggest thing out of this is for those correctional officers that have been doing it for a while and they're feeling isolated and like they're the only one that's struggling, this should inform them that no, what you're dealing with is actually pretty commonplace. It would be, uh, it's just not reality to think that you can go and do that job for any amount of time and not be affected in some way. Oh yeah. The, The human body and mind is not built for that. You have yeah. to you have to train yourself and develop yourself to be able to be effective in that role, but the toll that it takes if it's not addressed is huge. So I just uh for those people out there listening that uh, you know if you know somebody that's in corrections maybe check in on them.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely you know, and I'm always uh, open to, you know, to help people, you know, and not, that's not just within my prison or within this state, you know, if, if somebody knows a, a correctional officer from another state that's having problems and they don't know how to deal with it, you know, reach out to Dave and, and he can get you in contact with me, and, you know, I'm more than happy to help, and you know, I've been really fortunate to, to have some good things happen and learn some good coping, you know, mechanisms, and, you know, I, like I said, we met Dave at, uh sacred mountain retreat center out there in south dakota and and uh uh, not just Dave, everybody there was great you know the organization's great and i would be more than happy to put people in contact you know with either those organizations or just sit down and listen you know like i said it doesn't have to be this state you know i'm more than happy to do that so hopefully if uh anybody sees that get a hold of dave and we'll uh see what we can do to get people some help Absolutely.
0: Well, again, Steve, thank you so much, man. It was great no, talking thanks. to you.
1: Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Let me kind of talk about it and get, you know, like you said, it's not common. A lot of people don't realize it. Getting that out there.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit HollenbachLeadership.com for additional content. My goal is, and always will be, to add value to as many people as possible, so if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts, linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.